Section 6 of How to Have Bird Neighbors. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Margaret Lang. How to Have Bird Neighbors by S. Louise Pattison. The Boy. One day in early April, I was in the ravine getting hepaticas. Before I knew it, I was near the boy's house again. His mother called to me from the garden. "'The boy is at home now,' she said. "'Maybe you would like to see him at work.' I thanked her and went with her to the little shop. There beside his workbench stood a boy about twelve or thirteen years old. He was painting the wren house a dark green. The bluebird house was finished, ready to put up. I told him I had put up my birdhouses long ago— and that the bluebirds had been house-hunting for some weeks. He said that there were so many English sparrows around his place that he feared they would nest in his houses if he put them out early. But he had just learned of a way to keep the sparrows from nesting in bluebird houses. He said his manual training teacher had advised him to mount his houses for wrens and bluebirds only about eight feet from the ground, since the English sparrows seldom nest lower than ten feet from the ground, and will not be likely to take a house that is lower. The boy put up the bluebird house while I was there, on a young maple that afforded plenty of shade. His bluebirds were house-hunting, too, and visited the house right away. I told him about the tin sheeting to keep cats and squirrels down. He said he had been using tanglefoot, the sticky stuff that is sometimes put on trees to keep bugs down. But he said that cats and squirrels didn't mind climbing over it, and he was going to try the tin. I fear that the boy was not wise in delaying so long to put up his birdhouses. When I saw him again in mid-April, he said that one pair of bluebirds had nested in a house that he had intended for chickadees, that another pair were in an old hollow tree, and that a pair of wrens were visiting the new bluebird house. Two of his other houses were for woodpeckers, and a beautiful new one for purple martins already had some tenants. It is two years now that the first martin house has been up, and yet I have never had any martins to stay, said the boy. They would come, go into the house and twitter, and then fly away. He began talking again about his manual training teacher, how she called one day and told him that the martin house was mounted too low and too near trees, that martins want to be fifty feet away from a tree or building and sixteen feet up from the ground, also that it pleases martins to have openings near the ceiling of their rooms so they can have a change of air. I remarked that this ventilation would make their rooms more comfortable. Yes, said the boy, and this new Martin house is made according to teacher's directions. As we stood there, Martins were flying about, twittering, singing, perching on the telephone wires nearby, and on the roof and the porches of their house. The pole had hinges, so that the house could be brought down and cleaned when necessary, or closed. One lovely June day, found me again at the boy's home. I remarked the large number of young robins on the lawn. The young have just left their nests in that tree, answered the boy, pointing into a big cherry tree. Robins have nested in that tree every year since I can remember. I guessed that perhaps the cherries were the attraction. Well, he said, we think birds earn all the cherries they eat. We never pick those on the top branches at all, but leave them for the birds. During that visit, the boy showed me several bird homes. First, he apologized for doing it. 
"'Every bird home is a secret between mother and me,' he said, then added, "'but I know I can trust you. "'One of these little homes belonged to bluebirds, "'the others belonged to the flicker, the wood thrush, and the killdeer. "'We walked slowly and talked low, as we went from one place to another. "'Loud talk and running frighten birds.' And to go very near to a bird nest is harmful because every time the mother is frightened away, the eggs or young are liable to get chilled if the weather is cool. If hot and the nest is exposed to the sun, the eggs or young are liable to get overheated. The boy told me of a marsh hawk's nest, which a gentleman came to photograph. He said that this gentleman brought a lad along to hold his hat over the young to shield them from the sun during the mother's absence. The two were there only about ten minutes, but evidently that boy told other boys, for soon the nest was being visited at all times of day. At every visit the mother flew away, and in a few days all the young were dead. I remarked that photographing nests should be done with the greatest care, that if any screening foliage was pushed aside it should be replaced, and the nest left just as the mother bird had planned it. It is indeed fortunate that bird photography is so difficult that only few people attempt it. Exposing a nest to the camera is very apt to result in disaster, unless it is done by one who has the highest interests of birds at heart. The flickers had their home in a stump of a tree. The entrance was so low I had to stoop in order to look in, but the nest was down deep, out of sight. Whenever father or mother flicker came with food, they called softly, "'Ye quit! Ye quit!' Then the babies could be heard making a hissing sound. Sometimes when the parents were gone longer than usual, a baby flicker could be seen taking a peep at the outside world. One day during the previous spring, while walking along the ravine, I had seen three of these large brown birds, and had learned their name from hearing them sing. Flicker, flicker, flicker. It is easy to get acquainted with birds who are named after their song. One of these birds on that spring day was constantly spreading his wings and his tail before the others, as if he wanted to show the beautiful yellow feathers underneath. Because of these yellow feathers, the flicker is also called golden-winged woodpecker. Nearly all birds have a scolding word. When the flicker wants to scold, he says, queer, as plainly as a person can say it. Of course, we never went near enough to any bird's nest to frighten the brooding birds, nor did we stay long enough to keep the parents from feeding their young. We always found a convenient place fifty feet or more away, and through our field glasses watched the birds without annoying them. I had long known the wood thrush by his yodeling song. It usually came out of the thickets and tangles in the ravine back of our place, so the singer could not easily be seen. At sunrise and sunset, the music of the thrushes, singing and answering one another, was like bells calling to prayer. From early May until mid-July, I always wanted to be out mornings and evenings to attend the matins and the vespers of the woodthrushes. Mrs. Woodthrush tried hard to hide her nest. It was completely surrounded by thorn bushes. Witta-witta-witta-wit, said her mate as we went near. Then he came out of his hiding place. He had a brown back and a white and brown speckled front, just like Mrs. Woodthrush who sat serene on her nest all this time. She was trusting in something to protect her fully, whether it was her brave companion or those bushes bristling with thorns that surrounded her nest, I do not know. Maybe she thought we didn't see her at all. 
we pretended not to see her. Always, when I find a nest, I turn away and try to keep the birds from knowing they have been discovered. I look out of the corners of my eyes and go away humming a tune. After a while, I return and walk nearby, again singing the same tune. I do this as many times as I can during a day or two. Before long, the birds seem to know that the person who comes singing that tune has never harmed them. They remain quiet when I am near, and this affords opportunity to observe them more closely. Some blue jays were flitting about. Blue jays are everywhere and at all times of the year. The blue jay is that big blue and white bird with handsome crest. In early spring he sings some pleasing notes, but in autumn and winter he is just noisy. Now he was very still. I could just see Mrs. Blue Jay's head between two branches of a poplar tree. She had a nest there, for there were telltale twigs hanging over on both sides. Mr. Blue Jay did not want anybody to find her, nor the nest. This was why he kept so still. The boy had scattered some peanuts on a bald spot in the yard. I asked why he did this during the summertime. It keeps the chickadees and woodpeckers coming here all summer, said he. As we sat there, a blue jay came for a peanut and went under a tree with it. There he punched a hole in the ground with his bill and poked in the nut. Then he went to a currant bush and got a leaf. Returning to the spot where he had buried the peanut, he patted the leaf neatly over it. A brown and white bird, about as big as a robin, flew overhead, singing, Kildeer, Kildeer, as loud and as fast as he could. There goes a killdeer, said the boy. So the killdeer is another bird that is named after his song. How easy it would be to know birds if all were named after their song, like the chickadees and the killdeers and the flickers, or after their colors, like the bluebirds, or after their actions, like the woodpeckers. The boy's father had found a killdeer's nest in a potato field when he was plowing. We went to see that, too. It was in a patch of ground overgrown with weeds, because the man had kindly plowed around it. Mother Kildeer sat dutifully on the nest while Father Kildeer guarded the premises and told us by his various shrieks and somersaults that he wished we would not go near enough to disturb her. On the farm that day I saw the golden-throated meadowlark. He is another yodeler. His favorite tune is Leo, Leolu. His songs ring so clear and flute-like that I can hear him away over at our place. He is a brown bobtailed bird. Over a beautiful yellow front, he has a black band, pointing down in the middle, V-shaped. A large company of these birds were in the meadow, happy as larks, so they are well-named meadow-larks. But think of a dear little bird and such a sweet singer as the song-sparrow, bearing the same name as the odious English sparrow. It seems unjust, and in this the boy agreed with me. We got to talking about the song-sparrow because one was on a fence-post nearby, singing over and over this lively ditty. The bluebird's home that the boy had mentioned at the beginning of my visit was in a hole of an apple tree. By standing on tiptoe, I could look in and see four light blue eggs lying on a nest of grasses that looked like a cunning little basket. It was a hot day, too hot for Mother Bluebird to stay in that hollow tree all the time. She was out playing tag with Mr. Bluebird, Perhaps she thought the hot air would keep her eggs warm. After she went in again, he visited her often with food. Before going after more, he usually perched on a little knob just above the entrance and sang. Sometimes she came out on the ledge to listen. 
It was a winsome sight to see the bluebirds in their primitive home. This was the bluebirds' second nesting on the farm. Their first one had been destroyed by the English sparrows. The boy said he had tried in every way to help the bluebirds, and that, whenever he saw any sparrows nearer, he gave a sharp whistle, his confidential whistle, he called it, and that Mrs. Bluebird got so she understood what it meant, that as soon as she heard it, she would come up on the ledge and call, Dear, dear, dear. Immediately, Mr. Bluebird would appear and drive the intruders away. These bluebirds were also annoyed by a red squirrel who climbed the trees in the orchard and peered into the nest holes. Mr. Bluebird dashed for him whenever he saw him, especially if he found him near the home tree. Sometimes both the bluebirds chased the red squirrel, who would run off barking like a little dog. The boy had seen how I put out strings and cotton and chicken feathers for the birds' nestings, and he had fixed up a store, as he called it, on a tree, where they could buy without money. Every little while a goldfinch came and got some string. Always on coming, he sang out, Pritchickety, as if to say, By your leave. Downy woodpeckers, chickadees, and nuthatches were there at this time of the year, although ordinarily they are seen only in winter and early spring. The boy said it was the ravine, with its trees and thickets and tangles, that attracted so many birds. He was always praising that ravine. He thought so much of it that he had asked the neighbors not to throw rubbish down there, and not to disturb the underbrush, which sheltered so many birds. He had also asked them, please, to keep their cats indoors at night, because so many birds had nests and helpless little ones on the ground or in low bushes. Mother put me up to that, he said, and added, we are trying to keep that ravine as a sanctuary for birds, where they and their little ones can be safe. Another thing that attracted birds to that place was a mulberry tree. Though only two years old, it was bearing fruit, and was visited by robins, orioles, thrashers, and red-headed woodpeckers. The boy had so many kinds of birds never seen near our place that I began to wish I, too, could live on a farm and have so many more of these charming neighbors. A storm came up. Soon the shallow places in a cornfield nearby were turned into puddles. The baby martins that had been lounging on the porch went inside. The old ones came flying home in a hurry. We went to the garden house, which the boy had fitted up as a workshop, because he didn't like to deprive his mother any longer of her little storeroom. When it stopped raining, the sun came out, and the clean earth fairly glistened. A flock of robins came to hunt for worms in the drenched field. Some bathed in the puddles. It was amusing to watch them chase one away if he stayed in long. As we were enjoying the robins, the boy's mother called out, "'Come here, you bird people, and see what has happened.' She took us to the living room and told us to listen at the chimney. A rasping twitter came from within. "'It must be those chimney swallows,' guessed the boy. He stepped upon a chair and took off the chimney cap. There, scrambling around in soot, were some black-looking birds. One, two, three, four, he counted, as he reached in and handed them out on a newspaper. Three were young birds, and one was an adult bird with long wings. Their nest was also there. The heavy rain had loosened it and made it fall. The little ones screeched in chorus and tried constantly to get hold of something with their claws. The older bird gave no sound at all. She seemed to be hurt. We called her the mother. The lady looked at their little nest. Then she went and fetched a basket, and as soon as the birds were removed to it, they began to clamber up the sides. When they got to the top, where they could hang at full length, they stopped their screeching. 
Only now and then they still gave a rasping sound. Perhaps they were hungry and scolded because nobody brought them any food. Some crossed over the rim of the basket and tried the other side. I stayed there the rest of the afternoon. Every ten or fifteen minutes the little birds gave a call, like, Kitsy, Kitsy! Thinking that they must be almost choked with soot, I tried to give them water, but they would not open their bills. I forced them open with a manicure stick and gave them a drop at a time. They swallowed it when it was dropped far down in their throats. Otherwise they would jerk their heads and throw it out. I also moistened a cracker with some egg yolk and mixed into it about fifty flies out of the fly trap, then tried to feed the birds with the little stick. By prying up their upper mandible, I got some flies down each bird's throat. The lower mandible was very soft and would not bear handling. I became so attached to these birds I hated to leave them, but the time came for me to go home. The boy and his mother seemed distressed at the prospect of having birds as boarders. There was canning to do, besides cooking for extra farm hands, and Laddie had to help his father with the haying, so his mother said. I offered to take the birds and do the best I could with them, if the lad was willing. He was, so I took the birds and the nest with me in the little basket, which was their temporary home. End of section 6